Hey out there, this is John Davison from the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and this is episode 221 uh, for May 24th, 2021. And this is a huge show. Not only are there some really good and interesting news stories for you today, but today, finally, after all the talk, all the waiting, it has come. <laughs> My super secret, highly collectible security enhancement device is ready to be revealed. Now, I, <laughs> I, I am really, really psyched about this, but frankly, I'm also nervous. I have no idea if anyone else is going to think this is as cool as I do, but I think it's really cool. So... I have been planning this, no joke, at least since last November. I wanted to come up with something really cool that I could give away as a special thank you to my patrons that would be really cool, that you could not find anywhere else, that would be totally on brand for me, and as a stretch goal, find some way that it can help people be more secure. That was a really tall order, and I racked my brain on this for a long time before I finally settled on what I settled on. And so what is it? What have, what have I been sitting on all this time? Okay. Starting today, I am making available to patrons and I'll tell you how in a minute, a challenge coin, a very special challenge coin. Now, if you don't know what a challenge coin is, basically it could be a lot of things. If you know anybody who's in the military or who's in law enforcement, they will surely know what these things are. They're often given out in that context, uh, but they're not just in those contexts. It's It can be given to anybody by anyone else as a very, very special thank you. They're meant to be, uh, maybe collectible is not really the right word, but they're meant to be very rare. That's something you can't get from anywhere else that you can only get from this one person or organization. So they're really special. Historically, they've also been given as a way to prove your membership in an organization. You could be at any point challenged to produce your coin to prove that you're a member. And so that's part of where it came in. Also, sometimes they were actually given out as people who successfully completed a challenge. So what does this particular coin look like? Well, I think it is unbelievably cool. So it is about two inches in diameter, which is about five centimeters. And it's hefty. It weighs about 1.8 ounces or about 51 grams. I've got one right here. You can hear me tapping it on the desk. It's it's solid. And so challenge coins have custom things on them. So I wanted something that would have a big old dragon on it, ravaging a castle, breathing fire. And I've got that. It's a really, really cool image. I worked with an artist in uh, Australia on this, and he came up with a really cool design. And we worked together on uh, what was going to be shown and you know what it was supposed to depict. And of course, I think the coolest thing about the whole thing is despite the fact that it's an amazing looking dragon and castle is that the castle's drawbridge is down. <laughs> so it totally ties in with my catchphrase. In fact, on the back, it's, uh, if you turn it over, it's got a kind of a spinning flame on the back and it says firewalls, don't stop dragons at the top. And at the bottom, it says, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. It's really, really cool. It comes in uh, three different metal finishes. You can get it in gold, silver, or copper, and they all look really cool. And uh, different people that I've shown it to have different preferences on which one they like. And I'll tell you in, in, a, in a little bit how you can get pictures of this and go see what I'm talking about. But there's one more thing. So how in the world does a challenge coin help people be more secure? 
So there's two features about this coin that if you could see it right now, you, you would be questioning like, what, what is that about? Around the edge of the coin on the front are the numbers one through 20 in kind of a random order uh, around the edge of the coin. And if you flip it over on the back in the dead center of the coin is a little round nub that sticks up just a bit. Just so that if you put it on a flat surface like I'm about to do, you can spin it like a top. Stop it with your finger and whatever number is just to the left of your finger, or I guess to the right of your finger if you're left-handed, is the number that you rolled. It's like a D20 die from Dungeons and Dragons. If you've ever played the old style Dungeons and Dragons game, you rolled many different dice of different face counts, but one of the ones you roll almost all the time is a D20 or a 20-sided die. So this coin is effectively a 20-sided die. Okay, so great. What do you do with that? Well, if you are a newsletter subscriber or if you check my blog, my most recent one was about creating a passphrase. And the way you create a secure passphrase is you have to randomly select the words that go into the passphrase. Now, I'm going to get into all the details of this, including the math, in our tip of the week. So I'm not going to get into that now. But this coin will let you create a secure passphrase. Now, to do this, you need a word list. And I created a custom word list for this. Actually, it took, there was an old thing called Diceware uh, back in the day that someone used to create passphrases by rolling regular old six-sided dice. And that didn't quite work for me because the, the number of words on the list corresponded to how many permutations of the were of the dice. Well, since I'm not using a regular six-sided dice, I'm using 20-sided dice, I needed more words on my list. About 224 more words to be specific. And so I had to add some more words. And so well, I thought, let's have fun with this. Let me add Dungeons and Dragons terms. You know, the list had a lot of nouns and, and terms in it, but there turns out a lot of them weren't things like sword and shield and halberd and, you know, bows and arrows and things like that. And I still needed more terms. So I thought, okay, well, let me add some, you know, names uh, of creatures or you know, characters from mythology or from literature or from Dungeons and Dragons. So anyway, I added some fun new terms to uh, pad out the, the older list to a full 8,000 words. And so what you do is you roll enough D20s to pick words from that list, and then you have your passphrase. So how do you do that? Well, I've created a whole new website. It's called d20key.com. The letter D, the number is 2020key.com, d20key.com. And if you go there now, it's available now, uh, you will see that you can roll virtual dice, virtual 20-sided dice uh, to create passphrases of any length, uh, well, uh, between three to seven words. You select your die color uh, or die style, and you select how many words you want, and then you click on each row, and it, and it rolls the dice and, and picks words for you. Again, I'll get into a lot of, I'll get into more of that stuff uh, for the tip of the week. But it also has a manual option so that if you want to roll your own dice or, I don't know, say a challenge coin, you can roll your own numbers, enter those numbers, and get, your, and get the words that way. So how do you get one of these super cool coins? Well, they are, in fact, highly collectible and rare. There are only 100 of these on the planet. Uh, and <laughs> I'm keeping 10 of these for myself. So there's really only 90. And again, I had to pick the, I had to pick the coin metal types. So there's only a limited number of each flavor, uh, gold, silver, or copper. And to get one, uh, I am starting today a promotion that lasts, uh, probably going to last for four weeks. I may extend it. We'll see how things go. But at least for the next four weeks, if you sign up as a patron and I've got, there was a $2 level, which I called Castle Denizen. 
somebody who resides in the castle, and a $5 level, which was the castle guard level. And today I'm announcing a new one, a $10 level called Knight Errant. And if you've never heard that term, a knight errant is sort of the classic romantic knight who roams the countryside on quests. And so I thought that would be a cool title for that new level. And there's some other cool things about that level, which I'll tell you about in just a minute. But if you sign up at the $5 level for a year, if you pay in advance, uh, not only will you get two months free, I will send you one of these challenge coins. If you sign up for the $10 level, the brand new $10 tier for a year in advance, you will also get two months free and I will send you two coins of your style choice. Now, the guy I worked with to actually mint these coins, mint and produce and manufacture these coins, I didn't, I didn't do all this myself. I found someone else to help me do this. He will also be my distributor, and he says that he can ship internationally. So anybody who signs up, I suppose within some reason, I guess there may be some remote parts of the planet that might be unreachable, but people in that region are probably not listening to this podcast. So they will ship internationally as well. Oh yeah, one more thing. As a benefit to those of you holding the coin and in keeping with the challenge coin tradition, if you ever happen to meet me in person and produce the challenge coin, I will buy you a drink of your choice and I will be proud and happy to do so. And honestly, I know that seems like a real long shot, but I sincerely hope that that happens somehow, some way, someday. So I don't talk about the Patreon stuff too much in detail. I do mention it um, because I'm looking for patrons. And honestly, now that I'm retired, my, my my main goal really for Patreon is just to break even. I really enjoy doing this, but now that I'm not bringing in any income, I'm trying to at least cover my costs. And they can be actually, they add up. So um, that's part of why I'm doing this promotion. So go to patreon.com and search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And you can also see the other benefits that come with being a patron. Um, Discord is one of them, and I'm really enjoying that, actually, being able to chat directly with uh, my patrons. I've really found that to be very cool. Um, and if you join at the Knight Errant level, you get some really cool bonuses. So you know that I've been using taglines now to introduce the show. There's one today. If you join at the Knight Errant level, you will have the opportunity, if you want, to send me a tagline. You could say, hey, this is Joe Smith, and you're listening to Kerry Parker on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, and I will use that as an intro to at least one of the shows. Also, uh, for people that sign up at that level, I will do a one-time shout-out to announce your knighthood to the realm. That is to my audience and the planet. I'm also considering doing transcripts, uh, making those available. I'm not sure how valuable that is. So I'm going to be adding other things, but I think that's enough. I, I think that makes it pretty darn cool. So anyway, head over to patreon.com, search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, or if you go to the show notes, there's a link right there, and you can find out all about it. So basically, for the cost of a grande latte a month, you can get a challenge coin. And for the cost of, oh gosh, a cocktail at a decent restaurant, you can get two challenge coins and get famous. So there it is. Finally announced this. I've had this in the back burner for so long. I'm actually going to be doing a, a making of video that goes into a lot more details in this stuff. I'll be posting that for patrons and maybe for everybody. I'm not sure how that's going to work yet. But there was a lot that went into this. It's, it was quite, quite the effort. But I'm so super proud of this thing. Uh, the pictures actually honestly don't do it justice. Uh, you can go to the site and, uh, and look at the coin link and look at the pictures. It's really cool. And again, that's d20key.com. Uh, and if you click on the coin link at the top, 
uh, you'll you'll see a little spinning image of the coin. You'll see some pictures of the coins. I did my best. My photography is not that great. It looks much cooler in person, to be honest. The, it didn't really capture the the vibrance of the colors or the detail on the coin. But you'll get an idea of what it looks like. And I think it's just super, super cool. So anyway, I'll stop talking about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for indulging me. Hey, everybody. Uh, real quick. Um, sorry. I know this is going to sound a little bit disjoint because it is. I woke up early Monday morning to check on something one last time and uh, it is still not there. So Patreon, you have to go through this kind of special thing to qualify for being able to sign up people on an annual basis instead of a per month basis. And I did that over the weekend. However, for some reason, Patreon is still not allowing me to enable that feature. So uh, the whole promotion for this challenge coin kind of depends on that being available. And this looks really dumb, and I apologize for that. I'll change it as soon as they allow me to change it. So if you go to Patreon right now and look for the annual membership, you won't be able to find it, which is really driving me nuts. Um, so anyway, my sincere apologies. Keep checking back. Uh, it will be enabled at some point soon, and as soon as it is, uh, then the promotion will be valid. If for some reason I cannot do this, and I don't know why that would be, just hang in there, and next Monday I will give you an update on what's going on. We've waited this long. You may have to wait a little bit longer, but hopefully not. If I uh, if I need to communicate something to you guys, I'll tell you what I'll probably do is I'll post something publicly on Patreon. So just look at the recent posts and that anybody can read, and I'll put something there if there's something I need to tell you guys before next week. And otherwise, I will just update you next week uh, in the next podcast. So again, hang in there with me. We'll get this done, and I apologize if there is a hiccup on this. All right, so excited. But uh, let's talk about the news. I've got lots of stuff to cover today. We're going to talk for sure about the dark side ransomware attack that hit the Colonial Pipeline and all the implications of that. Also, the executive order signed by the U.S. President Joe Biden that had some really good stuff in it. And we're going to talk about actually an Irish cyber attack, another ransomware attack across the way that hit the uh, HSE. I'm going to tell you about a new warning from Microsoft about a data-stealing malware that's going around pretending to be ransomware, but isn't. I promised you I would give you an update on where things stand with Apple's new ATT, or App Tracking Transparency, initiative. It's really surprising in a good way. And then uh, EFF and Super Reports and some other folks have gotten together to create a Dark Patterns tip line. I thought that was kind of cool. I wanted to make sure you're aware of that. There's a really, really creepy new uh, deepfake voice service out that raises all sorts of weird questions. Uh, we've talked about this in the past before, but the technology is just getting better and better, and it's really quite astounding. I'll even have some audio examples to play for you, so that that will be interesting. I'm going to talk about how the Eufy cameras started showing other people's video. Yeah, you know, you'd log into your smartphone to see what was up with your webcam, and the video there would not be your own. That's not quite as bad as it sounds, but uh, nevertheless, I'll explain what happened there. And then finally, we're going to talk about Amazon Sidewalk. I mentioned this several months ago when Amazon announced it. Uh, apparently, it has now gone uh, live, and it is opt-out by default, meaning that if you own an Amazon device, which includes Ring video doorbells, I believe, and Echo products and things like that, then you are automatically participating in this, whether you, you chose to or not. So I'm going to tell you what that is and how to opt out. I've also got a couple really cool announcements to make. I got a great review for the book, and this podcast was added to someone else's list of top podcasts. I'll tell you about that as well. And our tip of the week, of course, will go right along with the new challenge coin. It'll tell you how and why to use a passphrase. 
So let's get to the news. All right, first up, let's talk about the Colonial Pipeline hack. Uh, it's been going on for the last few weeks. It seems to have been resolved. How it got resolved is still a little bit questionable, but I've got a couple articles I want to read to you here. First of all, the EFF put together a, an FAQ, a frequently asked questions kind of format article about what happened. And it, it, it starts off with, you know, what is ransomware and things like that. We've covered that to death. So uh, I'm just going to cover parts of this. As always, I'm, this is sort of the expurgated version. If you want the full version, check the show notes uh, for links to the full articles. But let's start with this, uh, some of the article here from the EFF. It says, the FBI revealed on Monday, and this was, would have been last Monday or the week before, that the hacking group Darkside, D-A-R-K-S-I-D-E, all kind of put together, is behind the latest ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline. Darkside is a relatively new ransomware group, only appearing on the scene in August 2020 in Russian language hacking forums. They have poised themselves as a new type of ransomware as a service business, attempting to inculcate trust, and they put trust in quotes, and a sense of reliability between themselves and their victim. In order to ensure payment, Darkside has found it useful to establish a reputation which ensures that when the victims deliver the ransom, they are guaranteed to receive a decryption key for their files. In this vein, the group has established a modern, polished website called Darkside Leaks, aimed at reaching out to journalists and establishing a public face. They say that they solely target well-funded individuals and corporations which are able to pay the ransom asked for and have a code of conduct claiming not to target hospitals, schools, or nonprofits. They have also attempted to burnish their image with token donations to charity. Darkside, who reportedly typically asked for ransoms that ranged between $200,000 and $200 million, produced receipts showing a total of $20,000 of donations to charities, Children International, and The Water Project. The charities refused to accept the money. Darkside claims that they are not affiliated with any government and that their motives are purely financial gain, a claim that has been assessed most likely to be true by cybersecurity firm Flashpoint. However, Darkside code analyzed by the firm Cyber Reason has been shown to check the system's language settings as a very first step and halt the attack if the result is a language, quote, associated with former Soviet bloc nations, unquote. This has fueled speculation in the U.S. that Russia may be affording the group special protection, or at least turning a blind eye to their misdeeds. So let me stop there for a second. And this is actually, I think Brian Krebs reported this too, that this, this malware, before it starts messing up your system, looks to see if basically you have a Russian keyboard installed, virtual or other, I guess, virtual keyboard. Uh, and if so does nothing. And so it was postulated this might be some way that you might protect yourself against this, but you know, the bad guys are going to figure this out. As uh, Steve Gibson pointed out on a, on his security podcast that I listened to, uh, you know, all you got to do is check whether it's the default keyboard. Now, not just that it's installed, but the next step would be, well, is it the default keyboard? Because if somebody was really in Russia, they would make that their default keyboard, not just simply have it installed. So, you know, that makes it a little bit harder to work around this um, because you'd actually have to make that your keyboard. Uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, the result has been profitable for the cyber extortion group. In mid-April, the group obtained $11 million from a high-profile victim. Bloomberg reports that the Colonial Pipeline paid $5 million to the group. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. I forget if this article talks about it, but that payment of, of the ransom has been in dispute. I think the company said they did not pay it. Now, it's, I think... That may be technically true because it may be that their cyber insurance company paid it, not them. So, you know, maybe that was just a face-saving maneuver by them to claim that they didn't pay it, but that someone did pay it, which just wasn't directly out of their checkbook. And by the way, I think I also heard that, 
I think that was in this case that the ransomware group, as part of what they what they did when they exfiltrated files, when they stole files from the company, they found they found the document that listed their cyber insurance policy details. And so they knew exactly how much their cyber insurance was willing to cover. And I guess they used that as part of the bargaining with them in terms of what they decided, you know, how much they were going to pay. So anyway, moving on. Colonial Pipeline has operated continuously since the early 1960s, supplying 45% of the U.S. East Coast gas line supply, in addition to diesel and jet fuel. On Friday, May 8th, it shut down 5,500 miles of its pipeline infrastructure in response to a cyber extortion attempt. The pipeline restarted on May 12th. In an apparent response to, though not an admission of involvement in, the attack, Darkside released a statement on their website stating that they would introduce quote-unquote, moderation to, quote, avoid social consequences in the future, unquote. If patterns are any indication, Darkside chose Colonial as a big-game target due to the deep pockets of the firm worth about $8 billion. Still, many suspect that Darkside is now feeling a dawning sense of dread as the lateral effects of their attack are playing out. Panic buying, gas shortages, and involvement by the federal investigators, as well as an executive order by President Biden, intending to bolster America's cyber defenses as a response. Escalated to the level of an international incident, Darkseid may see the independence and latitude they are reported to enjoy dissipate under geopolitical pressure. So what can I do to defend myself against ransomware? Frequently backing up your data to an external hard drive or cloud storage provider will ensure you are able to retrieve it later. If you already have a backup, do not plug the external hard drive into your computer after it is infected. The ransomware will likely target any new device that is recognized. You may need to reinstall your operating system, replace your hard drive, or bring it to a specialist to ensure complete removal of any infection. You can also follow our guide to keeping your data safe. And this is a link to uh, the EFF's wonderful surveillance self-defense guide, which I think is ssd.eff.org. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, has also provided a detailed guide on protecting yourself from ransomware. And that's a link to, uh, again, find the link to this article in the show notes, and you can download that PDF. Note that it's much easier to defend yourself against malware than to remove it once you're infected. So it's always advisable to take proactive steps to defend yourself. So yeah, and these are things we talk about on this show all the time. This is basic internet hygiene. You know, don't click on links if you don't have to. Certainly links that come in emails, no matter who they say they're from, don't download attachments that you didn't expect or request, that sort of stuff. Moving on to a related article. This is from the Washington Post. This was written after the EFF uh, article I just read. Uh, this came out. This article came out on May fourteenth, which is about a week ago. The criminal hacking group that took down Colonial Pipeline, causing debilitating fuel shortages on the East Coast, has said in a message that it is shutting down after facing pressure from the U.S. government. And this next is a quote from uh, from the group from the Dark Side group. And it's just a snippet. Obviously, it refers to something I'm not reading here, but it says, quote, in view of the above and due to the pressure from the U.S., the affiliate program is closed. Stay safe and good luck, unquote. So affiliate program, I, I mentioned earlier in the previous article, this was ransomware as a service. So this is a business. I mean, these guys are in the business of of infecting people on behalf of other people. So their service is, hey, you want to make some money on ransomware? Great. Tell us who you want to infect. Uh, we will go infect them for you, and we will take a cut of your profits. That is ransomware as a service. Crazy, I know. Back to the article. It says, 
but some security experts warned that the group may just be trying to take its money and run, collecting its ransom and disappearing from public view as it faces increasing heat from the high-profile attack. While Colonial has resumed pipeline operations, service stations throughout the Mid-Atlantic and southeastern United States were still reporting short supplies of gas on Friday. Now, I, I, I don't drive much, so, but I have been around enough to see that things look like they're back to normal uh, here, at least in North Carolina. Other ransomware gangs seemed to reevaluate their priorities as well in the wake of the sudden spotlight on Darkseid, at least in public-facing statements, voicing anxiety about what the massive hack's noise and hype could mean for business. Moderators on the Russian language forum XSS, which is uh, short for cross-site scripting, it's one of uh, kind of a standard set of web bugs, Anyway, that's the name of the forum, it says, which is popular with cybercriminals, said in a post that they would remove all references to ransomware, according to a research note from digital risk protection firm Digital Shadows. Two other ransomware groups, Avedon and Sodino Kibi, uh, I think Sodino Kibi is also called Revil, said on another forum that they would set limits on what hackers could attack using their services. Avedon said it would no longer permit attacks on healthcare organizations, public education, or charities, according to Digital Shadows. Darkseid had issued a statement earlier this week indicating that it too was chagrined by the disruption the Colonial Pipeline attack had caused. And this is a quote from their statement. It says, quote, We are apolitical. We do not participate in geopolitics. Do not need to tie us with a defined government and look for other motives. Our goal is to make money and not creating problems for society, unquote. Well, <laughs> that's rich. Any of these things would be a problem for society. Uh, anyway. The FBI declined to comment on whether the U.S. government had played a hand in shutting down Darkseid's website. The Darkseid Leaks blog on the dark web has been down since midday Thursday, which would have been uh, May 13th. Darkseid's ransomware-as-a-service business model allowed other hackers or affiliates to use its services to attack companies. The hackers would lock down computer systems so companies could no longer access them, then demand a ransom to unlock them. Often, hackers would steal some data and then insist on a second or larger ransom in exchange for not publishing the information online. Darkseid's website, when it was available, included a page of data that, from targets that presumably did not pay the ransom. It also operated a press center where reporters could register for news releases and an online registration system for victims. Companies could sign in to find out how to pay the ransom and even to get a discount on the demanded price. Starting anew would not be difficult. By using a patchwork of hard-to-trace cryptocurrency exchanges, encrypted messaging services, foreign hosting services, and other systems available on the dark web, the group could probably reform in a matter of weeks under a new name in hopes it could escape the spotlight and fall back into the cybercriminal crowd. Okay, so as partially as a response to this, and partially as a response to solar winds and all the other recent massive cyber attacks, the U.S. administration uh, came out with an executive order recently, which I think is on the whole very good. I mean, well, you know, you always have to wait and see what actually comes from this, but at least the intents look good. And uh, they put out a press release for this, and I'm going to just read you parts of that just to kind of give you an overview of, uh, of what is contained in these executive orders, and I'll comment a little bit as we go. And again, this is from a press release from the White House in the U.S. It says, Today, President Biden signed an executive order to improve the nation's cybersecurity and protect federal government networks. Recent cybersecurity incidents such as SolarWinds, Microsoft Exchange, and the Colonial Pipeline incident are a sobering reminder that the U.S. public and private sector entities increasingly face sophisticated malicious cyber activity from both nation-state actors and cyber criminals. These incidents share commonalities, including insufficient cybersecurity defenses that leave public and private sector entities more vulnerable to incidents. 
And then it goes on to list, I think, six things that this executive order does. And so I want to summarize those for you here. Uh, it says, first one, remove barriers to threat information sharing between government and the private sector. The executive order ensures that IT service providers are able to share information with the government and requires them to share certain breach information. Then it kind of goes on with some flower language, but uh, this is this is key. I mean, information sharing is really important and, and forcing companies to actually notify the you know federal agencies or law enforcement agencies about these breaches is key a lot of companies like to sweep these under the rug and try to pretend they didn't happen so we probably don't know about a lot of these so actually i think one of the key parts of this actually is the you know forcing them to share the breach information you know and i'm sure it's probably kept on the down low but at least you know i'm mandating that they fess up and at least get the federal government involved so that the fbi and or you know CIA slash NSA or whoever can get involved and track things down is, is definitely a good idea, I think. All right, number two, modernize and implement stronger cybersecurity standards in the federal government. The executive order helps move the federal government to secure cloud services and a zero-trust architecture and mandates deployment of multi-factor authentication and encryption with a specific time period. I think it means within. Outdated security models and unencrypted data have led to compromises of systems in the public and private sectors. The federal government must lead the way and increase its adoption of best security practices. I absolutely agree with this, and I've talked to recently about the, the kind of the zero trust mentality. And that is definitely the buzzword right now in the cybersecurity community, and I think that's where we're, we need to go. Our cybersecurity threat models in the past have been like an M&M, hard on the outside and soft and chewy on the inside meaning that a lot of the network defenses are at the border of the network, like at the, you know, at the entrance to the network, like where the, the corporate or agency network meets the internet, you know, I have firewalls and routers and all these intrusion devices at there. But then once inside the network, uh, everything was trusted to some degree or another, at least it was a lot easier for, you know, systems within the network to talk to each other and share data and, and that kind of thing. That can't be true anymore. Um, we've got a segment, our networks and just assume that any device in our networks could be compromised. So anyway, it's good that the government is leading on this uh, multi-factor authentication and encryption. All these things are really good things. And it's good to start mandating that they must be used everywhere. These are best practices and it's time we start following them. All right. Number three on the list, improve software supply chain security. The executive order will improve the security of software by establishing baseline security standards for the development of software sold to the government, including requiring developers to maintain greater visibility into their software and making security data publicly available. It stands up a concurrent public-private process to develop new and innovative approaches to secure software development and uses the power of the federal procurement to incentivize the market. Finally, it creates a pilot program to create an energy star type of label so the government and the public at large can quickly determine whether software was developed securely. Too much of our software, including critical software, is shipped with significant vulnerabilities that our adversaries can exploit. This is a long-standing, well-known problem, but for too long we have kicked the can down the road. We need to use the purchasing power of the federal government to drive the market to build security into all software from the ground up. Okay, this this might be, I think, the, the linchpin for the whole thing as far as I'm concerned. The gov U.S. government buys a lot of stuff. And so when the government says, you know, in order to sell to us, you've got to meet certain minimum security standards, that's going to have a ripple effect that helps everybody. Um, the whole, and you know, the Energy Star type of label, that sounds interesting. We've already kind of got this with privacy, with Apple. They're doing this now, like the nutrition label kind of thing. But, I, you know, having a standard 
and having an easy way for consumers and businesses to look at product A and product B or service A and service B and figure out which one is better, in this case more secure, is a good thing. Now, obviously, there's a lot of problems that could go into this. I mean, if they pick the wrong criteria, you know, who knows how good this label is going to be, but it's a start. You know, and something like Energy Star and nutrition labels and things that all get refined over time uh, to make better. So, uh, you know, we'll get there, but we got to start somewhere. All right, next up, number four, and it looks like there's seven, not six uh, points in this. So number four, establish a cybersecurity safety review board. The executive order establishes a cybersecurity safety review board co-chaired by government and private sector leads that may convene following a significant cyber incident to analyze what happened and make concrete recommendations for improving security. Too often organizations repeat the mistakes of the past and do not learn lessons from significant cyber incidents. When something goes wrong, the administration and private sector need to ask the hard questions and make necessary improvements. This board is modeled after the National Transportation Safety Board, which is used after airplane crashes and other incidents. Again, good idea. Like it. Love it. The NTSB has been around for a long time and I think has done some generally good work. And again, it's, you know, it's, it's a merging of public and private sector stuff. I think, I think on the whole, this is a good thing. All right, number five, create a standard playbook for responding to cyber incidents. The executive order creates a standardized playbook and set of definitions for cyber incident response by federal departments and agencies. Organizations cannot wait until they are compromised to figure out how to respond to an attack. Recent incidents have shown that within the government, the maturity level of response plans vary widely. The playbook will ensure all federal agencies meet a certain threshold and are prepared to take uniform steps to identify and mitigate a threat. The playbook will also provide the private sector with a template for its response efforts. Again, this is cybersecurity 101. Government should have been doing this already. Big corporations already do this. These uh, incident response teams, security incident response teams, so CERT, S-I-R-T, this is standard practice. And it's good that the government is is finally doing this. You know, as always, with anything like this, it just remains to be seen how quickly all these various agencies, you know, government's huge, you know, can actually respond to this and how well they're actually going to do with this. But, you know, hey, again, this is a start. All right, two more quick ones. Number six, improve detection of cybersecurity incidents on federal government networks. The executive order improves the ability to detect malicious cyber activity on federal networks by enabling a government-wide endpoint detection and response system and improved information sharing within the federal government. Slow and inconsistent deployment of foundational cybersecurity tools and practices leaves an organization exposed to adversaries. And finally, Improve investigative and remediation capabilities. The executive order creates cybersecurity event log requirements for federal departments and agencies. Poor logging hampers an organization's ability to detect intrusions, mitigate those in progress, and determine the extent of an incident after the fact. Robust and consistent logging practices will solve much of this problem. Right, so this is basically forensics, making sure there's breadcrumbs, making sure that things are quote-unquote tamper-evident. For example, when you go to buy drugs or actually at this point anything from the store it has these foil seals on it or sometimes it has the shrink wrap around the lid that's not to prevent somebody from getting into it and because if you remember back in gosh when was it the 80s or something when there was the rash of tylenol poisonings that's when this started and so the response was we can't prevent you know a determined person from getting into and poisoning bottles or whatever but what we can do is make it more evident when something has been tampered with and logging is kind of like that too. You know, it, it when your security and software systems generate enough logging with enough details, like so-and-so logged in at this time, 
and they logged out at this time. When they logged in, they moved these files or deleted these files or installed these applications. Or there was an incoming network request from this IP address, uh, and this is what data was transferred in or out, uh, and so on. All these things get logged somewhere. Well, they should be anyway. And when those things are done properly and securely, uh, they provide evidence of tampering, uh, of hacks. And they can be used to detect something that is just starting, or at the very least, they can use to figure out what happened after the fact. So anyway, this executive order was a long time coming. I don't have enough experience in government to know if there's been 20 of these prior to this that have been ignored. I don't know. But at least on paper, this is a good idea. Lots of great ideas. And, uh, you know, if this is adopted quickly enough, it should help all of us, even those of us outside the public sector, even those those of you outside the United States. It should drive change in the private industry as well. And that's good for all of us. All right. So let's, let's look at a cyber attack that happened outside the United States. Uh, this was in Ireland and it hit the Irish health service. And I wanted to give a little update on that. So, um, this is from the BBC. It says the Conti and that's C O N T I, the Conti ransomware group, yet, yet another ransomware group. This is an extremely popular business for cyber criminals and nation states. Anyway, sorry. The Conti ransomware group was reportedly asking the health service for $20 million or about 14 million pounds to restore services after the catastrophic hack. But now the criminals have handed over the software tool for free. The Irish government says that it's testing the tool and insists it did not and would not be paying the hackers. Taoiseach Michael Martin, and uh, Taoiseach, I guess, is the term, the Irish term for prime minister, said on Friday evening that getting the software tool was good, and but that enormous work is still required to rebuild the system overall. Conti is still threatening to publish or sell data it has stolen unless a ransom is paid. On its Darknet website, it told the Health Service Executive, or the HSE, which runs Ireland's healthcare system, quote, we are providing the decryption tool for your network for free, but you should understand that we will sell or publish a lot of private data if you will not connect us and try to resolve the situation, unquote. Obviously, English is probably not their main language. Uh, it was unclear why the hackers gave the tool, known as a decryption key, for free, said the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly. And a quote from him, he says, no ransom has been paid by this government directly, indirectly, through any third party or other way, nor will any such ransom be paid. It came as a surprise to us. Our technical team are currently testing the tool. The initial responses are positive, unquote. In the USA, a warning has been issued by the FBI about Conti targeting networks belonging to authorities there. It said it had identified at least 16 Conti ransomware attacks targeting, quote, U.S. healthcare and first responder networks, unquote. More than 400 organizations have been targeted by Conti worldwide, of which more than 290 are based in the U.S., according to the FBI. And again, uh, this is from the FBI. It says, quote, Conti steals victims' files and encrypts the servers and workstations in an effort to force a ransom payment from the victim. If the ransom is not paid, the stolen data is sold or published to a public site controlled by the Conti actors, unquote. The FBI said that recent ransom demands have been as high as $25 million, or 21 million pounds. It's not unprecedented for ransomware criminals to give away their decryption tools for free. Some of these gangs operate by a flimsy code of ethics, stating that they don't intend to endanger lives. In one case, criminals accidentally took a hospital offline. Reports suggest the hackers gave the hospital a decryptor for free when they realized their mistake. Then again, there are ransomware operators who don't care and are presumably delighted to watch chaos unfold as they extort money from their victims. Hundreds of healthcare facilities in the U.S. alone were tacked in 2020. Yeah, so, you know, there is no honor among thieves at the end of the day. These guys are out to make money, and while they you know, they can claim that they're they're not political and that they're trying not to hurt anybody, they just want money, you know, the money, taking the money hurts people. 
publishing that data hurts people. So there is no upside to this. I don't, I don't know, maybe it helps them sleep at night. I don't know, but we, we've got to figure out a way to stop this. And, you know, upping all of our security standards is a big step. There is a sort of herd immunity we can get to. There's, you know, with when it comes to cybersecurity, the more of us that are, have basic protections in place, the harder it is for these kind of things to make money. The harder it is for viruses to propagate, just like viruses in the real world, which is why I'm here talking to you right now. All right, next up, quick warning here from Microsoft about a new malware going around. Let me read this uh, from the Hacker News. It says, Microsoft on Thursday warned of a massive email campaign that's pushing a Java-based Strat malware, and that's spelled S-T-R-R-A-T. That's short for something. Rat is a remote access Trojan, uh, which is a type of malware. Anyway, uh, it's called Strat. To steal confidential data from infected systems while disguising itself as a ransomware infection. And this is a quote from Microsoft. They say, quote, this rat, again, that's remote access Trojan, is infamous for its ransomware-like behavior on appending the file name extension .crimson to files without actually encrypting them, unquote. The new wave of attacks, which the company spotted last week, uh, commences with spam emails sent from compromised email accounts with, quote, outgoing payments, unquote, in the subject line, luring the recipients into opening malicious PDF documents that claim to be remittances, but in reality connect to a rogue domain to download the Strat malware. Besides establishing connections to a command and control server during execution, the malware comes with a range of features that allow it to collect browser passwords, log keystrokes, and run remote commands and PowerShell scripts. Strat first emerged in the threat landscape in June 2020 with German cybersecurity firm GData observing the Windows malware version 1.2 in phishing emails containing malicious JAR or Java archive files. Java is a programming language. And this is a quote from GData's uh, spokesperson. Uh, she says, quote, The rat has a focus on stealing credentials of browsers and email clients and passwords via key logging. It supports the following browsers and email clients, Firefox, Internet Explorer, Chrome, Foxmail, Outlook, and Thunderbird, unquote. Its ransomware capabilities are at best rudimentary in that the quote-unquote encryption stage only renames files by suffixing the .crimson extension. And uh, Karsten Hahn says that that was the spokesman from GDAT. She says, quote, if the extension is removed, the files can be opened as usual, unquote. Microsoft also notes that version 1.5 is more obfuscated and modular than previous versions, suggesting that the attackers behind the operation are actively working to Im improvise their tool set. But the fact that the bogus encryption behavior remains unchanged, unchanged signals that the group may be aiming to make quick money off unsuspecting users by means of extortion. So I guess the upside there is, well, obviously the ongoing, the ongoing theme is be careful. But uh, I guess one thing in this particular case is if you do happen to get this malware and it says all your stuff's encrypted and you're seeing files that end in .crimson, I guess you at least know that the file should be okay. If you just remove that file extension, the file should be fine. However, it sounds like what they're really doing is taking your data and holding that for ransom or selling it. So that's the least of your worries. And what this really says is, uh, you know, the, the defense against ransomware in the past was, well, make sure you've got good backups of everything. You know, if the bad guys come in and encrypt all your data, you know, fine, throw that all away, you know, re-import your saved versions of that data and you're back, you're back on track. And, since, you know, companies were doing that, the bad guy said, hmm, well, we need, we need we need another angle here. And that new angle is to actually steal your data and then threaten to release that data, publish it or sell it or something like that. And it doesn't matter how many backups you have at that point, 
that's a whole different kettle of fish. All right, I mentioned that I was going to do, give you an update on the Apple AirTag privacy issues. There's really not a whole lot to say, actually, that I didn't already say. Uh, there's been a lot of articles about how these can be used to stalk people. I brought that up when I talked about it. Uh, if you want, maybe just go back and listen to that episode where I talked about them. It's a really cool technology, but, you know, Apple still needs to refine the software on this to, to try to thwart people using these devices to either track or stalk people. And I think they're going to have to work with Google to put some of the safeguards that they have for iPhone users in place for Android users as well. And so this leads interesting into the next story. All right, so we talked about Apple's uh, new ATT or App Tracking Transparency uh, initiative that came out in iOS 14.5, um, which caused a huge stir. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a really interesting update on this, and uh, I want to bring this to you. This is from the New York Times. And it says, many of the biggest tech firms have long insisted that customers care more about free services than the privacy they surrender to use them. Companies like Facebook pointed to their own exponential growth and insisted that customers were voting with their feet. Turns out that was nonsense. When offered an actual choice in the new operating system that runs on iPhones, Americans are all in on privacy. Just 6% of U.S. daily users of Apple's latest mobile software are opting in to allow companies like Facebook and its many affiliates to hoover up data about them and sell it to advertisers, according to Flurry Analytics. And then parenthetically, it says this figure is higher globally at about 15%. Facebook tracks users everywhere online because it sells ads at higher rates to marketers when it has highly detailed personal information known as targeted advertising. That's why advertisements on Facebook are often creepily specific. A Google search for jeans might later yield ads for Gap jeans in the style, fit, and colors you like. Since late last year, Facebook has been carrying on a very public fit over Apple's new privacy option, arguing that it hurts small businesses. The logic is that without the extensive personal information users provide to Facebook for dispersal to data brokers and marketers, mom-and-pop shops simply cannot successfully hawk handbags, burger seasoning, or plumbing services. Of course, the social network's objections are really about Facebook's ad sales business, which generated $25.4 billion in the first three months of 2021 alone. Anything, Facebook professes, that threatens its ability to trail users as they browse retail, travel, news, and other sites could threaten the company's ability to offer its social media sites, quote-unquote, free of charge. Uh, and this is a quote from Jonathan Mayer. He's an assistant professor of computer science at Princeton. He says, quote, Facebook is really saying, what can we do to protect our business model? It's entirely unsurprising that they would oppose a change that introduces more control to consumers and less opportunity to collect data that can be fed to back to advertisers, even if that's what consumers are saying that's what they want, unquote. Early data shows that consumers overwhelmingly want more privacy. Apple's new operating system for phones forces each app to ask permission to track users across the Internet, a choice that was previously available but difficult to find. Almost all users opted out. Clay Gendron, an analyst at Southern New Hampshire University, said the choice to opt out of tracking was an easy one for him. And he says, quote, Apps are asking me to opt in to being tracked so I can have better curated ads. It's like they're telling me I should be grateful and want them to sell my data to be a better target to advertise to. It's just a comically terrible value proposition, unquote. Other app companies, including Etsy and Pandora, try a different approach by reminding users in mobile pop-ups that their free services are supported by targeted advertising. The weather network implies that tracking users helps it save lives. Twitter and Nextdoor simply want customers to have the most relevant ads. 
but customers shouldn't be guilted into helping people sell them stuff. Without knowing that a user spent 20 minutes browsing cooking gadgets on Sur La Table, advertisers can do a pretty good job guessing who is most likely to want to see meal kit ads through a type of marketing known as contextual advertising. That relies on clues they can more easily glean, such as general age, gender, location, and income level. Advertisers are willing to pay much more for ads targeted based on users' behavior, but there's evidence that websites don't see much of a revenue bump from that upcharge. According to a 2019 study, sites reap only a 4% reward for targeted ads after middlemen take their cut, belying app developers' arguments that their business is reliant on tracking. Users should have more control over their data, and Apple's solution is a step forward. Between phishing, robocalls and texts, malware and nagging pop-ups, there's enough manipulation online already without eerily specific ads that follow you around the web. Google, which like Facebook has a huge part of its business and advertising, like 90%, took baby steps this week toward adding privacy features, features to its Android mobile system, including options to obscure precise location data and show more detail about the information that apps are collecting. But it needs to get serious about consumers' rights or risk losing customers to Apple. Companies did just fine for decades marketing to consumers without access to their every movement or keyboard and mouse click. And with 94% of Americans saying they liked it that way, it's time for advertisers to listen. And obviously, I could not agree more with that. I think it's great that, you know, 90, what is it, 96% of people opted out. I'd, I'd love to know how they actually came across that figure. I've actually heard that it's lower than that. But still... It just goes to show what informed consent can really do and that we didn't really have it before, no matter what Facebook and Google and all these companies have been claiming for years about how they've given us all the power to make these changes, uh, when in reality they hide it <laughs> in so many different ways and using dark patterns and euphemisms and other things to you know, shame us or trick us into giving away more of our data. When presented with a simple option, a lot of people just say no, and we need more of that. All right, a couple quick more news items here. First of all, um, an interesting coalition has put together a dark patterns tip line. And I just talked about dark patterns. I've talked about them several times before. And it's a true scourge uh, of the industry, our marketing industry today. Uh, so let me read this real quick because um, I thought, thought this was really interesting. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has joined Consumer Reports, Access Now, PEN America, P-E-N, I'm not sure what that stands for, and darkpatterns.org in launching the Dark Patterns Tip Line, a project for the public to submit examples of deceptive design patterns they see in technology products and services. Dark Patterns design tactics are used to trick people into doing all kinds of things they don't mean to, from signing up for a mailing list to submitting to recurring billing. Examples seen by users every day include hard-to-close windows urging you to enter your email address on a new site, email opt-outs on shopping sites and difficult-to-find locations in difficult-to-read text, and pre-checked boxes allowing ongoing charges. And here's a quote from EFF designer uh, Shinran Mori. She says, quote, Your submissions to the Dark Patterns tip line will help provide a clearer picture of people's struggles with deceptive interfaces. We hope to collect and document harms from dark patterns and demonstrate the ways companies are trying to manipulate all of us with their apps and websites. Then we can offer people tips to spot dark patterns and fight back, unquote. So if you see a dark pattern, head to darkpatternstipline.org hosted by Consumer Reports. Then click Submit a Pattern and enter the name and type of company responsible, a short description of the misleading design, and where you found it. You can also include a screenshot. So again, that is darkpatternstipline.org. All one word, all, all put together, just like it sounds. Uh, that's really cool. Uh, I happen to, I'll check that out myself, and if I find some, I'll try to submit some. I think that's a great idea. 
All right, next up, this is this is really weird and creepy. And we've talked about deep fakes on uh, on the podcast before, which are videos uh, using artificial intelligence and machine learning to map one person's face onto someone else's body. Uh, there are other ways to do it, but that's that's the one that most people see. There are other meanings to that word deep fake, but basically it's a fake video. It's it's taking real video footage and altering it in, in mostly unnoticeable ways to make it look like something that it wasn't. Well, this one is now about voice deep fakes, which I've talked about those before. They were back, you know, gosh, it must have been two or three years ago, maybe. But uh, there was a site that was doing fake Trump and Obama voices that was mostly believable. And I said at the time, it's just going to get better. Well, it's gotten better. And I've got some recordings that will prove it. Uh, but let's read this article from The Verge. It says, Recording advertisements and product endorsements can be lucrative work for celebrities and influencers. But is it too much like hard work? That's what U.S. firm Veritone is betting. Today, the company is launching a new platform called Marvel.ai that will let creators, media figures, and others generate deep fake clones of their voices to license as they wish. And this is a quote from Ryan Steelberg, who's the president of Veritone. He says, quote, People want to do these deals, but they don't often have enough time to go into a studio and produce the content. Digital influencers, athletes, celebrities, and actors. This is a huge asset that's part of their brand, unquote. With Marvel AI, he says, anyone can create a realistic copy of their voice and deploy it as they see fit. While Celebrity Y is sleeping, their voice might be out and about recording radio spots, recording audiobooks, and much more. Steelberg says the platform will even be able to resurrect the voices of the dead using archive recordings to train AI models. And he says again, quote, Whoever has the copyright to those voices, we will work with them to bring them to the marketplace. That will be up to the rights holder and what they feel is appropriate, but hypothetically, yes, you could even have Walter Cronkite reading the nightly news again, unquote. Speech synthesis has improved rapidly in recent years, with machine learning techniques enabling the creation of ever more realistic voices. Just think about the difference between how Apple's Siri sounded when it launched in 2011 and how it sounds now. Many big tech firms like Amazon offer off-the-shelf text-to-speech models that generate voices at scale that are robotic but not unpleasant. But new companies are also making boutique voice clones that sound like specific individuals, and the results can be near indistinguishable from the real thing. Just listen to this voice clone of podcaster Joe Rogan, for example. Now, this is a podcast, and that's audio, so I am going to include it. Here's, here's one of those clips. I've never told this story before, but on Thanksgiving weekend, I was doing a set at the comedy store, and some idiot ran up on stage. He comes up to me during the middle of my set and tells me that we are in a simulation. The guy was drunk out of his mind. He was so drunk that he couldn't stand up straight. So we all laughed at him and let security escort him out. But now that we have deep fakes and fake voices, I'm starting to believe that we're not far off from simulations after all. Now, I, I know of Joe Rogan. I don't know him. So I don't, I, you know, I don't know him well enough to say, oh, that sounds just like him. But it does sound like a real person. The inflection, the inhaling, I don't know if you noticed that, but there was a point there where he went, you know, and you heard that when he was speaking, that's pretty impressive. Now, that was not from Veritone. This is from somebody else. And we'll, I'll play a clip from Veritone here in a minute. Uh, let me get back to the article, though. It says, one problem Steelberg offers is how synthetic speech might dilute the power of endorsements. After all, the attraction of product endorsement hinges on the belief, however delusional, that this or that celebrity really does enjoy this particular brand of cereal, toothpaste, or life insurance. If the celeb can't be bothered to voice the endorsement themselves, does it take away from the ad's selling power? 
Steelberg's solution is to create an industry standard for disclosure, some sort of audible tone that plays before synthetic speech to A, let listeners know that it's not a real voice, and B, reassure them that the voice's owner endorses this use. And another quote from him, he says, quote, It's not just about avoiding the negative connotations of tricking the consumer, but also wanting them to be confident that this or that celebrity really approved this synthetic content, unquote. It's questions like these that are going to be increasingly important as synthetic content becomes more common. And it's clear Veritone has been thinking hard about these issues. Now the company just needs to convince the influencers, athletes, actors, podcasters, and celebrities of the world to lend it their voices. All right, so real quick, I want to play some of the examples that actually came from Veritone. So the first one is the actual live person saying it. So you reach deep into your pocket. Sure enough, you have an extra velament. So you look directly at Bob and say, would anyone else like a velament? Velaments. Good breath, good day. All right, now this one is the fake version of that. So you reach deep into your pocket. Sure enough, you have an extra velament. So you look directly at Bob and say, would anyone else like a velament? Velaments. Good breath, good day. All right, and finally, here's a fake version with the voice gender changed. So you reach deep into your pocket. Sure enough, you have an extra velament. So you look directly at Bob and say, would anyone else like a velament? Velaments. Good breath, good day. Yeah, so this is the thing. <laughs> this is happening right now. And I think I mentioned this on the podcast before I speculated that we will definitely get to the age where actors, athletes, whoever... I'm thinking actors in particular, will be able to do movies and TV shows and apparently endorsements after they're dead. We are at the point where we can digitize ourselves, our characteristics, our face, our voice, our mannerisms, and preserve them such that they can be used as the basis for generating new voice acting and so on based on the model created from the examples. So I ran across this myself recently. Uh, I was um, trialing this system for doing transcriptions and editing of podcasts. And one of the services they offered was an AI-based voiceover. And the way that worked is I trained their system with a set by reading a script. And, I, and they were smart enough to go through some a bunch of hoops to make sure that I really wanted to do this and I really authorized them to sample my voice because the result is I could then go through my podcast and if, if I'm, as I'm editing the podcast, if I screwed something up, I said the wrong date or the wrong word or uh, the wrong phrase or wrong name or mispronunciation, whatever, I could select that portion of the audio and tell it by typing in what I wanted it to say and have it generate in my voice that new snippet of audio and include it. So I wouldn't have to go back in the studio uh, and re-record that snippet and bring it back over and try to clip it in. Uh, it. With their system, I could actually select that portion of the text in the transcription, which would automatically select the corresponding audio snippet, and then type over that what I wanted it to say. And it would insert in my voice, uh, you know, synthetically, as this article says, me saying that thing so that I didn't have to go bother and re-record it. Now, I didn't test it. I didn't want to, honestly, I didn't want to have my voice recorded for that purpose. Uh, but this is coming, folks. This <laughs> this is a reality. Okay, moving on. We've got plenty more to get to. Um, 
And this is about Eufy cameras. Uh, that's U-E-F-Y. And that is a division of Anchor, which makes a bunch of stuff, a bunch of really good stuff, actually, on um, uh, for sale on Amazon. I guess that's the only place I've ever seen it. Uh, I've got a couple of Eufy cameras in my house, so this is important to me. And if you do, <laughs> listen up. This is from Naked Security Blog. Uh, from Sophos. It says, users of video cameras from home gadget maker Eufy are reporting that their video feeds seem to have been getting mixed up. Apparently, it's not so much that anyone could sneakily log in as user X and snoop on X's video feed remotely, more a case that sometimes when existing user X logged in, they ended up looking at Y's account instead. From what we've seen, and again, this is Sophos talking, from what we've seen, user X couldn't force this mix-up to happen, and if it did, then X couldn't predict who Y was going to be. In other words, the glitch, if indeed there was one, doesn't seem to have been reliably exploitable for any sort of targeted attack. Indeed, one user in Australia noted that he and his wife, each supposedly hooked up to, a, uh, to the same account under their own email addresses, ended up redirected to two completely different accounts and each had access to unrelated but incorrect feeds. We haven't seen any reports from Eufy users who have actually managed to recognize anyone or any locations in the video feeds that they claim to have seen by mistake. Nevertheless, we don't doubt that many video feeds will, at least some of the time, give away personal details or precise location information that really ought to be kept private. Now, the article goes on, but I want to read a snippet from another article that came later, uh, which includes a response from Eufy, and this is from The Verge. And it says, Eufy has put out a statement apologizing for a glitch that occurred two days ago, and this would have been last week, allowing some Eufy home security users to see video from other users' homes. The statement explains that it happened during a software update, but the company claims it only affected a small number of users, just 712 people across the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Cuba, New Zealand, Australia, and Argentina. Eufy says that the issue was fixed with an emergency update less than two hours after it was identified. In a statement to The Verge, Eufy confirmed that, quote, users were able to access video feeds from other users' cameras, unquote. However, in its official statement posted to Twitter, Eufy doesn't explain what the bug actually was. It does say it's working to keep this from happening again in the future by upgrading its network and the authentication mechanisms between the cameras, servers, and app. Eufy suggests that users in the affected countries should unplug, then replug their security home base, then log out of the Eufy security app before logging back in again. So, if you happen to own a Eufy camera, uh, you might want to go and do that. So for this last story, this is about Amazon's sidewalk network. And I talked about this a while back. This article explains this. Let me just read from Inc.com. Last week, Amazon said it would turn on Sidewalk, its mesh network that uses Bluetooth and 900 megahertz radio signals to communicate between devices on June 8th. I imagine that most people, even those who bought an Echo smart speaker in the past few years, have no idea what Sidewalk is. I suspect most of those people would even be more surprised to know that it's turned on by default on every one of their devices. I'll get to that part in a minute. Again, this is first person for the whoever wrote this on, on Inc.com. First, let's talk about Sidewalk. The idea behind it is actually really smart. Make it possible for smart home devices to serve as a sort of bridge between your Wi-Fi connection and each other. That is, if your Ring doorbell, for example, isn't located close to your Wi-Fi router, but it happens to be near an Echo Dot, it can use Sidewalk to stay connected. The same is true if your internet connection is down. Your smart devices can connect to other smart devices, even if they aren't in your home. The big news on this front is that Tile is joining the Sidewalk network on June 14th. That means if you lose a Tile tracker, it can connect to any of the millions of Echo or Ring devices in your neighborhood and send its location back to you. That's definitely a nice benefit, 
but it's also where things get a little murky from a privacy standpoint. That's because other people's devices, like, say, your neighbor, can also connect to your network. Amazon is pretty clear that Sidewalk uses three layers of encryption so that no data is shared between, say, someone's tile tracker and your network. The signal from the tile is encrypted all the way back to the tile app on your, on your iPhone or Android smartphone. Still, a feature like this seems like the type of thing you'd want some control over. If suddenly my devices are going to start connecting to my neighbor's Wi-Fi, or theirs to mine, it seems like you'd have to opt in, right? Nope. That's because Amazon has enabled Sidewalk on every single capable device by default. Whether you want your device connecting to other devices, or want your neighbors connecting to your Wi-Fi or not, Amazon went ahead and made Sidewalk opt out. To be fair, there's a good reason it did. A mesh network of devices requires, well, a mesh. That means that Amazon needs as many devices as possible to have the feature turned on. If it required you to enable it on your own, Amazon knows almost no one would. That has nothing to do with whether people have privacy concerns, it's just that almost no one changes the default settings for anything. Make on the default option and suddenly Amazon has millions of devices that can connect to Sidewalk, creating a true mesh network. Still, opt-out is a really bad way to operate, especially when it comes to things that connect all the devices in your neighborhood to a mesh network. What if you're just not comfortable with that? The good news is, you can turn it off. Amazon doesn't make it easy, but if you have the, and I'm not going to say the A word, but we all know what we're talking about, A-L-E-X-A, if you have that app, you can tap on the More tab at the bottom, then select Settings, Account Settings, Amazon Sidewalk. You'll see that it's set to Enabled. Just tap the toggle, and you can disable Sidewalk on all your devices on your account. Now, I told you all about this back when this was first announced, and I think I even told you then how to turn it off, but just in case, now you know. So I want to bring up one point, though, and, you know, I'd like to try to think of myself as unbiased, but, you know, I'm definitely an Apple fanboy. But in reality, in relation to the previous story about uh, AirTags, is Apple's really done the same thing? Well, maybe not quite the exact same thing, but very similar. It's basically the way AirTags work and the reason they're so good at tracking things around the entire planet is because all of Apple's iDevices participate in the tracking. And Apple, like Amazon, claims that they have bent over backward to make sure that privacy and security is not an issue. They've encrypted everything, the identifiers rotate, yada, yada, yada. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a similar thing. And like Amazon, it's on by default. So, you know, on one hand, I, I think the AirTags are really cool. I think that the what they've done with Apple's mesh network that lets you track these things anywhere on the planet is cool, but it's got the same basic concerns with Amazon, the article I just read. So, you know, try to be fair, trying to be balanced here. So at the end of the day, honestly, for me, it comes down to who do I trust more? And that is still by far Apple over Amazon. But, you know, I got to call it like I see it. They're really, these are really very similar things. Okay. Wow. So we've got a lot of news uh, and a lot of fun announcements. So real quick, I want to give you my tip of the week. And this is, if you've uh, subscribe to the newsletter or look at the blog. You've already seen me talk about this and I'm going to refer you to go read that for the details, but we're going to talk about how and when to generate a passphrase as opposed to a password. So real quick, what is the difference? Well, password, as we know, is some string of characters, not just letters, but it could be numbers and special characters like, you know, exclamation point, dollar sign, pound sign, whatever. 
that is a password and a really good password has random characters in it. It's not something we choose. And if you've listened to this podcast or listened to anybody in cybersecurity or just the password strength meter that's on the website where you're picking a password, it says, you know, don't use words, you know, use something totally random. And the only way really to do that is to use a password manager and have it generate it for you. That's by far the best way to go. And by the way, that is still the most secure way to go. I'm going to tell you how to make a passphrase, but at the end of the day, the math, and you'll, we'll talk about the math just briefly. Uh, the math works out that, you know, you can create random passwords that are 20 or 30, any real length you want. Uh, and those are extremely, extremely secure. But in some situations, you might want to use a passphrase instead. And I'm going to talk about that next. So what is a passphrase? Uh, maybe as the name might imply to you, a passphrase is not a series of characters. It's a series of words, dictionary words. And y- you know, you're not supposed to use words and you know, when you make your passwords. But the reason for that is is that when people put words in their passwords, they pick meaningful words because they want something they can remember. And so that might be their grandkids' names or their mascot or their favorite band or sports, you know, whatever. People pick things that they can remember, things they like, and that makes them guessable. What you really want is you want to find a password or passphrase in this case that it's not guessable. And the only way to do that is for you not to pick it. (laughs) It's got to be random. So you want, for a passphrase, you want a random series of words, dictionary words. So the the upside is that these are a lot easier for you to remember. You can come up with some really cool mnemonic devices. And by the way, if you get my newsletter, I apologize. I totally screwed up the spelling of mnemonic device. I was thinking as I wrote it that it looked wrong. I'm like, that's, is it spelled P-N, like, you know, like pneumonia? I searched for a mnemonic device spelled with P-N. Uh, and I got a hit. I'm like, oh, well, okay, I guess that is it. And I t- t- you know, took the link real quick. I didn't, I didn't even look at it. I should have looked at the link. I didn't even see what it was linked to. And I put that, <laughs> I put that in the newsletter and just really sloppy, unfortunately. Uh, I fixed it in the blog, by the way. It's not spelled that way. It's spelled M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C, mnemonic device. And that's, you know, like the thing you, you know, something you come up with to help you remember the days of the week or the alphabet or what months of the year have so many days in it. These are all mnemonic devices. So uh, anyway, the, the nice thing about this is with the words, you can, as a human, you know, even if you didn't pick the words, you can come up with some clever little mnemonic device to help you remember what words you were randomly chosen for you. So let's talk briefly, just briefly about the math and how this works. If you pick a password or a passphrase that's unguessable, what that means is the bad guys have tried all the ones that they know. They tried all the passwords that everybody uses and did those first and came up dry. And so now the only thing left for them to do is to try every possible password. And with a computer, you can do that. You can crank through billions of possibilities in a very little amount of time. So you need to make passwords or passphrases that have many, 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 many possible values so that it would take a computer, even a really, really good computer, effectively too long to go through all the possibilities and figure it out. So let's take a 12 character random password. So each of those characters in that password, if you look at a keyboard and add up all the possible characters, and that would be upper and lower case, which is, you know, 26 each plus 10 numbers, plus, you know, maybe another, I forget, maybe another 10 or 15 special characters. But if you add all that up, there's about 95 possible things that, you know, possible characters in a regular password. So the way you do the math and figure out what all the possible permutations are is for every letter in the password, that's another 95 possibilities. So if there was a two character password, then it would be 95 times 95. That's how many possible combinations there would be of two, any two of these 95 characters. And the, therefore the math in is 
the number of possibilities, in this case 95, raised to the power of the length of the password. So a 12-character password has 95 to the 12th possible combinations. And if you actually calculate that out, it is a really big number. In fact, it's got 23 digits in it, which is to say that it's on the order of 10 to the 25th power, or 23rd, sorry. Now, if you take, uh, if you want to find an equivalent passphrase, you need a list of possible words. And so that list of possible words becomes like your characters. It's the, the randomness isn't going to characters anymore. It's depending on how many different things it could be. So if I have a list of words, then my passphrase quality or strength is the number of possible values for any given word raised to the power of the number of words in the passphrase. Um, now, the, the classic way this was done, some guy did this a long time ago, and he came up with this method called diceware. And as it implies, he used regular old six-sided dice, casino-style dice, to roll numbers to choose words from his list. And so what he did is he created a list um, of 7,776 words. And the reason for that many words is because he suggested using five six-sided dice which, again, if you take six, the number of total possibilities for any given die, uh, raised to the power of five, which is the number of dice he rolled, six to the fifth is 7,776. So he, with the dice, would roll the dice and use the numbers in those dice to index into his list and pick whatever word corresponded to, let's say, three, two, five, one, one. Uh, you know, roll those dice in that order and then go to the list and pick out the word next to that dice roll. Okay, so what I did, because in mine, I'm a total fantasy geek and I love Dungeon Dragons and I've kind of had this whole dragon theme for <laughs> for everything I'm doing. Uh, I thought it'd be totally cool to use D20s, which are 20-sided dice. And uh, D20s are often used in playing Dungeons and & Dragons and a lot of role-playing games to determine the outcome of something. So it's truly random. And so I wanted to use D20s. And of course, now with the challenge coin, it's basically a D20 die. It's you, you spin it. Uh, it's got all the numbers from 1 to 20 on the edge and you spin it and then hold, stop it with your finger. And whatever is right next to your finger, that is the effective roll of your D20 die. Okay. So I wanted something about the same. And so I, with a D20, I thought, well, let's do three D20s, three 20-sided dice. So that's 20 raised to the power of three, 20 times 20 times 20, which is 8,000. So I needed to make a list of 8,000 words. And of course, I didn't want to start from scratch. So I took the Diceware list. With, actually, I took the Electronic Frontier Foundation's version of uh, the old Diceware list. They updated it. They took out some kind of vulgar words. They took out some confusing words. There were some, there were some odd ones in that original list. And they remade it into their own list of 7,776 words. So I started with that. And then I added my own words. And I thought, well, you know, this is my list. I can make it however I want. Let me add in some cool Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy terms. So, you know, swords and halberds and shields and, you know, whatever was not already in the list. Uh, that was kind of fantasy based. I put it in there. I, I, you know, I had to come up with over 200 of them. So I thought, well, you know, let's put in some mythological names, you know, Zeus, Hera, you know, Hermes or whatever, you know, let's throw those in and just kind of some fantasy and mythological terms. And I padded that list up to 8,000. So you do the math and you say that there are 8,000 possible combinations uh, of three D20 dice and you have, let's say six words. So that's 8,000 raised to the power of six. That is also a really big number, and it also happens to have 23 digits in it. So there are a lot of nuances to that that I'm not going to get into here. 
And if you actually read my blog article on this, I link to some other articles where they really dive deep into, for instance, what if your list had the words in and put both on your list? And then if you put them next to each other, that also makes the word input. How does that affect the number of possibilities? There's all sorts of weird, you know, nuances like that. So, but anyway, that very roughly speaking, you know, a randomly generated six word passphrase is roughly equivalent in security to a randomly generated 12 character password. So now with mine, and you can go to the brand new website, d20key.com. And if you want, you could just let the, the website roll it for you. It's really pretty. You can choose your dice color. You can give metal dice or red or green or blue dice. And then you click on each row and it rolls the dice and they even spin on the website and they'll pick words for you from my list. Or if you are a patron and you have got the spiffy challenge coin, you can roll the coin instead and go to manual mode. Or if you have your own D20 dice, for gosh sakes, if you want to, if you actually have your own D20s or want to buy some, to be truly, truly random because, you know, really uptight, paranoid security people don't trust websites to roll numbers for them. You roll the dice and then you manually enter the numbers and it will tell you what, you know, what word corresponds to that series of three D20 rolls. So there you go. That's the math. That's how you do it. And so when do you use a passphrase? I would use it, for example, maybe for the secret key to my password vault. That makes it easy to remember. It's something I don't have to write down necessarily, though that's okay too, as long as you don't do it on your computer. If you just put it on a piece of paper and put it in your safety deposit box or, you know, hide it away somewhere, that's fine. Just don't put it as a digital file somewhere. And you, you obviously can't put it in your password vault because that's the password to get into the password vault. So, you know, catch 22. You could use this to create a password for your password vault, which I actually have done myself. I used to use a, the other technique I would use is to find a phrase uh, and pick the first letter of the phrase and use capitalization and punctuation and things like that. But I've changed it using my very own challenge coin and my brand new website, d20key.com, d20key.com. Uh, and spun my values on my coin and picked my words from there. Now, one quick note, you can do a couple other things to make it more secure. First of all, you can add spacers between your words, um, some sort of separators. It could be spaces, actually. A lot of password things will accept spaces as a valid character. Uh, but you could also use dashes or slashes or periods or pick whatever you want. Part of what would make that more secure is that nobody knows what your separator would be. And then finally, you can add what's called a salt to that word. And then don't mean table salt. This is a cryptographic salt. And all that really means is you've added a little extra junk on the end to make it just that much harder to guess. And since everything so far has been lowercase letters, why don't you add in some numbers and symbols? Uh, so the example I give on the, on the website, and I rolled uh, five words and I rolled tutor, poncho, audible, maternal, walk. Those were, those were my five random words. Uh, and then I thought, okay, let's add a little salt to that. Let's add um, eight dollar sign, nine pound sign. Let's add that to the end. And then I'll use, oh, I'll use a dash. I'll use a dash for my word separator. So the result was tutor dash poncho dash audible dash maternal dash walk dash eight dollar sign nine pound sign. And so it doesn't have to make sense. I just came up with a silly mnemonic device to remember that. And what I came up with was my tutor with a poncho has an audible maternal walk that costs eight dollars or nine pounds. I mean, who knows what the conversion between dollars and pounds is. doesn't matter. Again, the phrase doesn't have to make any sense whatsoever. It only has to be memorable. And now I've got a really kick butt passphrase that I can use for situations where regular old passwords might be too difficult. So there it is. There's your tip of the week. And for those of you who want to become patrons, you can get a super cool, highly collectible challenge coin that you can also use to randomly generate a passphrase. <laughs> 
All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up this week. Thanks for tuning in again. I got just a few more things real quick before we go. First of all, if you want to support what I'm doing here and you don't want to be a patron, I get that. I don't need everybody to be a patron. I don't need everybody to do something. But if you would like to help out and being a patron is not something you want to do, but you still want to you know, maybe help out and further the cause, there are plenty of other things you could do. First of all, you could tell other people about Patreon. Maybe they want to be a patron. Uh, you could also follow me. The more people that follow me on social media, the better. You know, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, even on Mastodon. If you're on social media, you can post my stuff and repost my stuff on social media. That is also a huge help, especially if you happen to have a large audience. And as I mentioned recently, I'm also now getting into some one-on-one consulting and doing some speaking gigs. So I would love to hear from you if you'd like me to maybe speak to one of your groups about cybersecurity or privacy. We can work out a custom topic, though I've already got some presentations already ready to go. And if you need help with any of the stuff I've talked about here on the show and tips and the newsletter, the book, or if you just have questions... Uh, I'm also going to be doing some one-on-one consulting. And so if you are interested in this, or maybe if you know somebody else who might be interested in that, uh, you can find my contact information on the website, firewallsdontstopdragons.com. Okay, in other news, I was just added to uh, Threat Technologies' list of the 20 best computer security podcasts of 2021. Uh, That's very cool. And real quick, I also got a new book review from Janet, five out of five stars. She titled it Very Well Written and Informative. Uh, And she says, I can't say enough good things about this book. It explains in everyday terms how to maximize your computer security and privacy. It covers a large array of topics in sufficient depth and gives detailed steps to follow on both Apple and Windows systems. Android phones and iPhones are also included. The book is well organized so that it's easy to find what you're looking for. It's really saved me from my own ignorance. Thank you, Mr. Parker. And Janet, you are very welcome. And thank you so much for writing the wonderful review. Those really make a big difference. All right. Next week, we got an interview show with Bennett Cyphers from the EFF. We're finally going to get to Google's new Flock technology that they claim will replace third-party cookies and be a more private way to track you all on the web. I think you can tell what I feel about that. But uh, anyway, we're going to get into that with Bennett Cyphers. That's that's a great interview. And, of course, plenty of others down, coming on down the pike. So stay tuned. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Maybe consider subscribing to the newsletter or if nothing else, you can check out the blog at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And of course, the book. Check out the book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons on Amazon and anywhere else you can buy books online. And for those of you who want to pick up one of these super cool challenge coins, just head over to patreon.com and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll find all the information there. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. Get those vaccinations. And I'll see you again next week. And until then, as always, don't get caught with your driver's stuff.